Good day, everyone. If you would do me a favor and open in your Bible to Psalm 119. We're going to be looking at verses 89 to 96 just to get the message started. I'm actually going to be going to many different scripture texts. It's a, it's a topical sermon um, in the true meaning of the term. And unfortunately, this past Sunday morning, um, when we tried to record it, um, we had some technical issues where it did not get recorded, so I am actually going to redo the sermon because I think it's that important, and I don't want anybody to miss it who's willing uh, to give it a listen online. So, this topic is on the three uses of the law of God. Before we even read the scripture, let me tell you why I think this is super important. Last week's message, um, the Sunday before last, was on the grace of God and how it, it, it teaches us. And so we talked about how the gospel, that is the grace of God in the gospel, is the engine that basically turns our ought to into want to. Because when Jesus forgives us, he gives us a new record, he gives us a new heart, and he gives us a new life, we actually now, out of thankfulness, and through the power of the Holy Spirit who was sent, he sent to live within us, we want to do the things he calls us to do in all of his word, the whole counsel of God. And so the question then becomes, well, if we can't be justified by the law, and that is if we can't gain a, a right standing with God by our attempts to obey God's law, and if we can't be sanctified by the law, that means we can't keep ourselves saved by our own works of trying to keep the law, then is there any place in the Christian's life anymore in the new covenant for the law of God? And that is what we're going to deal with because I find um, that uh, people throughout the ages have been confused on this point. And today we are really confused on this point. Um, not only in the world, but unfortunately sometimes even in the church. So that's what this message is going to be about, and I think it'll be worth your time. So I hope you will um, give it a good listen. Um, so we're going to start Psalm 119, beginning in verse 89. Hear the reading of God's word that is to you this day. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth, and it endures. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Save me, for I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. To all perfection, I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. Let's pray. Father, right now we pray for your spirit's illumination, that he would help me preach your word with clarity, with compassion and boldness, and that God, that you would open the hearts of each listener that they would ponder and consider the truths that are found in your holy word, both Old and New Testaments. And Lord, we pray that we would be among those who 
don't only hear your word, but put it into practice. That we be among those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. And that, Lord, we would take it to heart and by faith and with your help, put it into practice. So God, be with us to this end for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for our own good and that others might be blessed through your work in us. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Now, if you've read the Bible for any length of time, you'll probably notice that the law of God is sometimes referred to in the Bible as the letter that kills, 2 Corinthians 3.6. In Galatians 5.1, Paul calls it a yoke of slavery. And then in Acts 15.10, Peter stands up at the council and says, he refers to the law as a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. Now, in other places of Scripture, it's referred to in, it, in the exact opposite way. So, for instance, in uh, James chapter 1, verse 25, he refers to it as the perfect law that gives freedom. And then the Apostle John says this, His commands are not burdensome, 1 John 5, 3. Well, which is it? Is the law of God a yoke of slavery, or is it the perfect law that gives freedom? The Bible answers the question this way. It's both. It all depends on your relationship to it. Now, if you're trying to earn a right standing with God by obeying it, then it will certainly be the death of you. No doubt about it. It'll be a cruel, unbending, unrelenting taskmaster, which will never be satisfied. For those trying to be justified by observing the law that is declared righteous in God's sight, it's no wonder that it becomes for them a yoke of bondage and the letter that kills. But when someone turns to Christ by faith, realizing that they are totally unable to complete, fulfill the demands of the law, and they totally rely on Jesus' perfect fulfillment of the just requirements of the law on their behalf, then they are redeemed from the curse and the condemnation of the law. As Paul so eloquently puts it in Colossians 2, 13 to 14, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Hallelujah. So for those of us redeemed by the blood of Jesus, the sting of the law is taken out. It now is simply a guidepost. And it shows us what the good and the pleasing will of the God who loved us so much he gave us his only son is. So from this perspective, the law does become for us the perfect law of liberty. Think of it this way. It's not a perfect analogy, but I think it'll help you a little bit. The same steel wall can be life to you or death to you, depending on your relationship to it. So let me put it this way. If you're locked in a room with steel walls that's tight, locked tight shut, and you don't have a key, and your survival depends on your ability to get out before the oxygen runs out, then the steel walls will certainly become your ironclad casket. 
But imagine that just as your oxygen is about to expire, the door busts open from, out, from without, and someone grabs you from the outside and pulls you out into the open air where the sun is shining, a cool stream is flowing, and smiling faces come to welcome you. You would say to yourself, of course, I've been freed from those walls of death. Praise the Lord. Well, many years go by, and one day you're walking down, maybe you're walking down an alleyway here in Atlantic City, and you're coming out of a Bible study real late one evening, and as you walk down the city streets, you soon notice that you're being chased, you're being followed by a bunch of questionable people. They back into some dark alley, and you see they got switchblades, and yet you manage to slip into this building with steel walls. And as you slip in and pull the metal latch down, you would kiss the wall and say, oh, how I love this wall. I think this wall and me, we're going steady. I'll be safe here until morning. And notice that in this illustration, the wall never changed. It's the same steel wall. But your circumstances changed, or your relationship and your attitude did. And, and it did drastically, in a drastic way. Well, in a similar way, the same law of God, which, on, which can only condemn us and cause us to despair of our sad spiritual state, when we approach it as a way to attain to a right standing with God, becomes a law of freedom. When those redeemed from its curse now approach it as a guidepost pointing us to the way to walk in our loving Savior's will. This morning I want to take some time to prove from God's word that this indeed explains how the Bible can refer to the law on one hand as the letter that kills and on the other the perfect law that gives freedom. So we're going to see that God, there's actually three God-given reasons that he gave us his law. The first is to restrain evil in society. The second use of the law is to convict us of sin and our need for a savior. And the third and final use of the law is as a guide for the justified. So that's what we're going to take a look at. The first thing we're going to see, and this is a very brief point, I'm not going to spend much time at all on it, is that God gave the law to restrain evil in society. Now, the, this first use of the law is often called by theologians the civil or the political use of the law. Dr. Joseph Stump sums it up real well when he puts it this way. By the political use is meant the use of the law as a curb to hold in check wicked men and to protect society against their aggressions. Listen, sometimes it's hard for us to, to really believe this, but there are some people that they don't care what God thinks. They don't care what people think. They don't care about anybody else but themselves, and they are intent on doing harm and doing damage. And so sometimes the only thing that stops them from carrying out the wicked intent of their hearts and their imaginations is the threat of punishment, of actually um, getting caught and then having to pay the price for doing the, the wicked deed. So in other words, someone may say, well, I really want to kill that guy, but I'm afraid if I kill him, then maybe I'll face the electric chair. Or maybe I'll have to go to prison and be locked up the rest of my life. You get the idea. Now, this is what I believe Paul is referring to, at least in part, when he's speaking to Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 8-9, and he says this, he writes this to him. 
We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, etc. See, in that sense, the righteous don't need laws to keep them from committing crimes. The ungodly do. And because society is made up of fallen sinners, we need the law to give us some measure of civility and order and protection in society. So although it's, it isn't designed to save us from sin, the law was designed in the first place to curb sin to a degree in society. And that's the first use of the law. Now the second use of the law, and I believe along with Martin Luther, it's the primary use of the law, is to convict us of our own sin and inability to save ourselves and to show us our need for Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Now the truth is that God's law, even when it was given through Moses, was never intended to be used as a way to earn a right standing with God. That is to say, God didn't introduce his holy, righteous demands as a means to gain acceptance with him through our following of them. Well, of course, you know, Paul got this question as well when he taught this. Some folks may ask, well, then why did give us his law at all if we can't obey it? I mean, if it wasn't given as a way to earn God's favor and obtain eternal life, then what is its God's given purpose? It's God given purpose. The Apostle Paul answers that question directly. We don't have to guess. In Romans 3.20, he tells us this. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Ah, so the law actually was given to do us a vital, indispensable service to reveal to us our sin and show us our desperate need of a Savior. You know, as someone once put it, the greatest of all sins is to be conscious of none. And I like the way Martin Luther puts it as well. It's very powerful and it's very succinct. He says, the law discovers the disease, the gospel gives the remedy. Amen. How sweet is the gospel when, when the law we realize through the law how sinful and depraved we are and how much we deserve punishment and wrath from God. The law shows us that it is good, holy, righteous, and our reasonable obligation to love the God who made us and everything else with all that is in us, not in order to get something from him, not to get him to bless us with health, wealth, and a life free of suffering, but simply because of who he is, for his majesty, his love, his goodness, his power, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his holiness, and his pure awesomeness. And how convicting it is when we think, do we love God like that? Or even close to that? And with the pure motives to boot. The law doesn't only show us 
that it's reasonable to love the God who made us and loved us like that. But the law also shows us that it's our reasonable service to love our fellow creatures made in God's image as we love ourselves. And it spells out very clearly what that looks like with great specificity. So, for instance, just as an example, if we love our neighbor, we won't steal from them. We certainly won't murder them. We'll protect their life, not take it. We won't lie. We won't commit adultery. We won't dishonor our parents if we love them. And so on. So when the law does its work, we realize we fall woefully short of loving God and our neighbors like that. You know, I always think of it this way. I heard it somewhere, and I can't remember, so this isn't plagiarism, but it's so absolutely true. It's just obvious. Um, you know, it's only those who actually try to follow the law that realize how impossible it is to carry out perfectly. Certainly Martin Luther was among those who tried through many ways and realized what a sin sinner he was. John Calvin puts it this way. The law, by displaying the justice of God, convinced them that in themselves they were unrighteous. For in the commandments of God, as in a mirror, they might see how far they were distant from true righteousness. They were reminded that righteousness must be sought in another quarter. The threatenings, on the other hand, pressed and entreated them to seek refuge from the wrath and curse of God and gave them no rest till they were constrained to seek the grace of Christ. So the law, far from helping our sad spiritual condition, simply revealed the depths of it and pronounced a curse on all who rely on keeping it to earn a right standing with God and eternal life. So the Apostle Paul writes this in Galatians 3, beginning in verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now listen, note carefully what's being condemned here. Relying on observing the law. And particularly here it talks about to be justified. To enter into a saving relationship with God. And maintaining a right relationship with God. We can't keep ourselves saved either by relying on our ability to keep the law. The only way we can receive justification as a gift of God's grace and sanctification is by relying on Jesus' perfect life and sacrifice on our behalf. Notice what Paul points out. Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse us. So he took the full brunt of the law's condemnation and curse that our sins rightly deserved. 
So that means Christ has set us free from the curse and the condemnation of the law. It no longer hangs over our heads with its incessant threats, demanding absolute perfection and threatening death upon the slightest infraction of its righteous requirements. And so when we find such statements in the Bible that refer to the law as the letter that kills or a yoke of slavery or a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear, it is referring to this particular point. When viewed as a means of salvation, it leads to misery and bondage because it curses and it condemns. That's what Paul calls being under the law as opposed to being under grace. But so here is the million-dollar question. Does the law have any place in the Christian's life other than to continue to keep the believer humble by showing him his sin and constant need to keep his confidence in Christ alone? In other words, is there another use other than the first use we mentioned and then this use we do, we're just speaking of, which is the second use? And the Bible clearly says a resounding yes to that question. For those who have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the law isn't any longer an unbearable burden, but an expression of our gracious God's will for us. In other words, it's a guide for the justified. It expresses God's good and perfect and holy will. We're going to turn to that, which is our last point right now. God gave the law to be a guide for the justified. Now those who say Christians have nothing more to do with the law since we've been freed from its curse and condemnation show that they have completely misunderstood the Apostle Paul's teaching. For although Paul unequivocally teaches that we have been freed from the condemnation and the curse of the law, he just as fervently held it up as a guide setting forth the pattern of holy living that believers should walk in. Now, he's not saying we get the power to do so through the, through the law. He's simply saying that this is, it expresses what is good, what is holy, what is right. So we know it when we recognize it. So we know that's what we're aiming for. This is what is good. This is what is pleasing to God. So, for instance, when he exhorts children to obey their parents in the Lord, where does he turn for support in the Bible? Well, he turns to the fifth commandment out of the Ten Commandments. So in Ephesians 6, 1 to 3, he writes this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now, was Paul placing the Ephesian believers' children back under the law or contradicting his teaching in Romans 6 to 8, for instance? Of course not. He was simply outlining what love for God and neighbor looks like for them in their particular station in life. Now, what I find particularly interesting is that Paul emphasizes the promise attached to the keeping of that commandment, that it might go well with you and that you might enjoy long life on the earth. For believers, the law is not a restrictive drag anymore, but a loving guideline directing us to the way God designed for us to live so that we might live blessed, holy lives. Now, this is how David viewed the law as a believer who himself was justified by faith, because Paul points out in Romans 4, 
uh, verse 6 and following, that David in the Psalms says, Blessed is he whose sins are forgiven, um, whose sins the Lord, the Lord will not count against him. So he's a justified believer. And yet, as a justified believer, um, David writes this in Psalm 119, verse 32. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. And then again, in verse 93 of Psalm 119, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you've preserved my life. Of course, there's blessing when we walk in the way of the law. And not just the law of Moses in particular, but the law as referring to the whole Pentateuch, first five books of Moses, and even the whole Old Testament. If you need another example of a direct re reference to the law as a guide for Christian living, then consider Paul's teaching concerning the duty of financially providing for teaching elders in 1 Timothy 5, 17, 18. He writes this, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. Now where in the scripture does it state that guess where in the law deuteronomy 25 4 to be precise so paul uses the old testament law to back up a principle that he teaches in the new testament as a matter of fact the new testament writers constantly go back to the law in order to instruct christ's blood-bought spirit-filled children on how to live their lives of, out of gratitude and in uh, at a gratitude for grace received. So in the first chapter of his first epistle, the apostle Peter clearly and unabashedly affirms that we are saved by faith. 1 Peter 1, 8-9. Yet just a few verses later, Peter exhorts Christians who are saved by faith to godly living with these words. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. So where does he go to set forth God's goodwill for his blood-bought children? Leviticus 19.2 that is the law of God. The law that clearly articulates God's will for his children. Now notice, our hope isn't in the law, in our ability to keep the law. Our hope is in Jesus, and his finished work. But the law points out the way that we are to honor God, and that's by being holy the way he is holy. Now let me be blunt. When Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, he took the sting out of it. It no longer stands over our heads, threatening out judgment unless we carry out its exacting demands. Now, instead of being a yoke of bondage with the power to sink us into hell, it becomes a flashlight directing our hearts renewed by the gospel in the good, pleasing will of our gracious master. Now Samuel Bolton really puts it well when he writes this. We look not to Sinai, the hill of bondage, but to Zion, the mountain of grace. 
We take the law as the image of the will of God, which we desire to obey, but from which we do not expect life and favor. Neither do we fear death and rigor. This, I conceive, is the concurrent opinion of all divines. For believers, the law is abrogated in respect of its power to justify or condemn, but it remains full of force to direct us in our lives. And here's a beautiful comment from him uh, that is awesome. He puts it this way. It condemns sin in the faithful, though it cannot condemn the faithful for sin. Isn't that awesome? It condemns sin in the faithful, though it cannot condemn the faithful for sin. You see, Paul's not schizophrenic after all. When on the one hand he says we're no longer under the law, and then on the other hand he appeals to the law when instructing Christians how to live. He's simply showing himself to be a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. He's dividing the word of God correctly. The law is used properly when it's used as a bit in the mouths of the wicked in society to hold them in check. It's used properly when it's used to show man his sin and his need for Jesus. And it's used properly when we turn to it to show us, like a map, what the good and pleasing will of our great God and Savior is. But where do we go to actually find the motivation and the ability to walk in the way of the perfect law that brings freedom? Now, see, here's the point. That's an entirely different question. And that's where people get confused when they say that when we teach a third use of the law that we're mixing law and gospel. No, they're mixing law and gospel. Because they're refusing to make a distinction between what God's will is and the power and the power that we need to do God's will. The Westminster Divines put it this way in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, section 7. Neither are the forementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. As the confession correctly points out, those who have been redeemed from the curse of the law now have the spirit living inside them, enabling the, their will to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. So now as regenerate believers in Christ, we love the law, we delight in it as David says on many occasions in the Psalms. And we delight in the law in our inner man, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7.22. When we were still under its supervision as a tutor, constantly condemning us for every minor and major infraction, of course we hated it. But now that we're under grace and we live according to the Spirit, the law becomes for us love commands, as James Ward puts it in his psalm. Now, the fact that we can't keep it perfectly, even as believers, in no way just diminishes this fact. The Spirit of God brings us more and more into the conformity with the perfect will of God set forth in the law, but we know that even with His help, we'll never keep it perf perfectly in this life. Because we still have a sinful nature, as well as a new nature. 
Just listen to what God promised to do for his people in the new covenant in Ezekiel chapter 36, 27. Listen to this and pay attention. This is very powerful. He says, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Isn't that awesome? It's that God in his mercy and grace, takes his blood-bought children, those he, whom he has forgiven and redeemed, and he places in them his very own spirit. The third person of the Holy Trinity lives inside every true believer. And the Holy Spirit moves in us to, to make us willing and to empower us to do what the law says. Of course, in this life, it can never be perfect because we still have that sinful nature that we have to put to death by the power of the Spirit. It's a daily struggle. It's a daily fight. For sure, we'll fall again and again and we'll be driven to despair of ourselves and put our trust in Christ's mercy like, like Paul says in Romans 7, who will rescue us from this body of death. Praise be to God through Jesus Christ. Heidelberg Catechism we already talked about the Westminster. Now let's jump to the Dutch Reform standards. Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 114. It's probably my favorite, uh, one of my favorites in the whole catechism. Puts it this way. But can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? Answer, no. But even the holiest of men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of this obedience. Yet so, that with a sincere resolution, they begin to live, not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. Isn't that, that's like put so well and so biblically. Now, two things are affirmed in this article. First, that the converted and even the holiest among them have only a small beginning of this obedience. And of course, we groan inwardly as we await, await our adoption, Paul talks about. But secondly, it points out that it is still true that those converted to God will, with a sincere resolution, begin to live, not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. Of course they will, because the Holy Spirit who lives in them will move them too. As I'm coming to a close in this message, I do want to warn you of falling off the cliff on either of two deadly directions. The one, of course, is lawlessness or antinomianism. You can focus so, so much on the second use of the law that you become tempted to disparage it altogether and view any exhortations from it as a secret attempt to bring you back into legalism. Now, this overreaction is understandable in a new believer just delivered from the bondage of legalism. But as the new believer grows in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he becomes more at ease with his new relationship to the law and begins to see the beauty and the splendor of his Savior's character reflected in it. And to his surprise, finds himself identi identifying with D King David as he cries out to God in prayer. This, from Psalm 119, 9-16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
Praise, to be, praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Now listen. For the folks who want to do away with the Old Testament law altogether because they see it as legalism and as impossible to carry out so it shouldn't even be brought up. Well, I have one question. Do you really think that Jesus' teaching in the New Testament is less exacting than the requirements of the law? How about this? You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. I tell you, anyone who looks after a woman and lusts after in her heart has already committed adultery. That's the teaching of our Lord. Or how about 1 John? Anyone who says he loves God but hates his brother is a liar. Do you ever think of that the exacting demands of loving your neighbor as yourself? Not to get anything from them, but purely agape love the kind that God has for you. I can go on and on with Jesus' commands. And by the way, he says, he, who is he that loves me? It's he that obeys my commands. But now there is the other danger, and I don't want you to fall off on the other side of the cliff either, and that's to so fo focus on the third use of the law that the gospel becomes eclipsed. I agree that this can be a huge problem. I've seen situations where the third use of the law was actually abused and used to bring people back under a yoke of slavery. The spiritual mood in such churches was more of a do this and live than the gospel, you live, now do this. Now, the corrective to such a situation is not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. It's not to throw out the law completely, since some people misuse it. The answer is to stop putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable and to begin putting the emphasis on the right syllable once again. So be sure to preach Christ and his amazing, free, glorious grace and love so that the Spirit will use the gospel message to transform minds and, and renew hearts. That when principles from God's law are mentioned, the people find themselves saying, Yes, Lord, that's my heart's desire. I'm eager to walk in your ways. John Newton, the author of that great gospel hymn, Amazing Grace, once wrote this in a letter. Another lawful use of the law is to consult it as a rule and pattern by which to regulate our spirit and conversation. The grace of God, received by faith, will dispose us to obedience in general. But through remaining darkness and ignorance, we are much at a loss as to particulars. We are therefore sent to the law that we may learn how to walk worthy of God, who has called us to his kingdom and glory. And every precept has its proper place and use. The law can show us what is good, but the law can't make us want to do what is good. Only the gospel can do that, brothers and sisters. That's why after the longest chapter in the whole Bible, the longest psalm as well, Psalm 119, praising the wonders of the law of God, King David ends the whole psalm 
in verse 176 with these words. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. Brothers and sisters, there's no question we will fall. There's no question we cannot keep it perfectly. And all that shows us is two things. As John Newton also said when he was old, before he died, I know two things. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is an even greater Savior. When you know that, more and more you will say out of gratitude, how I delight in your law. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us with no instruction, but you have revealed to us your redeemed people what is good and pleasing and holy in your sight. The way that we can live that brings real freedom. Oh Lord, for we know freedom is not doing whatever our hearts please, our sinful hearts. That gets us into bondage. But rather walking in your ways and learning to delight in the things you delight in more and more as we grow in your grace. We thank you for your law. And we thank you most of all that Jesus kept it perfectly for us and died to pay its curse for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.